No matter how absurd the narrative becomes, a fourth dose boost must stay home. Public schools will be closed. People will continue to buy into it. At least the 20 or 30 percent of the population that is really in the grip and that, that is really hypnotized because that's what it truly is. It's a process of hypnosis for certain people. Why did large swaths of society suddenly buy into masking toddlers or restricting people from visiting their loved ones even as they lay on their deathbeds? Today I sit down with Matthias Desmond, a professor of clinical psychology and author of The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Desmet is one of the world's leading experts on the phenomenon known as mass formation, which can occur when people are isolated from one another and free-floating anxiety is prevalent. The real reason why they buy into the narrative is always because it leads to this new social bond, because it frees them from their anxiety, because it enables them to direct their frustration and aggression at something. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Janja Kellek. Professor Matthias Desmet, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, quite a number of people have actually been talking to me about your work. Um, And when I learned that you were writing a book, uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, I was frankly very excited to read it. You're writing about it in a context of what's happening around coronavirus policy or coronavirus mania almost, as you describe it in some ways. But you were actually thinking about these sorts of things well before COVID was around. Yes, that's right. Yes, I started to, I started to, uh, to think about it in 2017, actually, and maybe even before that. But in 2017, I started to take notes to gather all kinds of ideas and thoughts about uh, totalitarianism, just because I, I noticed in 2017 that uh, like a new kind of totalitarianism was slowly emerging, emerging in our society, not a fascist or a communist totalitarianism, but what we might call a technocratic totalitarianism, meaning that you are heading for a society in which which relied more and more on technological control to um, to tackle the emerging objects of anxiety in our society, meaning there's such things as terrorism, climate change, and so on. It seems that a major part of the population and a major part of the leaders of society were inclined to uh, accept that only technological control, which also controlled private space and private life, would be sufficient to, or would be, uh, necessary to deal with with all the emerging problems in our society, real or imagined problems. So that's fascinating. And uh, why don't we actually start here? Um, you, why don't you tell me a little bit about your field of study and how you come to be thinking casually about such things? Yes. Well, I'm a clinical psychologist. I, I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. And um, I also later on in my career, I also got a master in statistics just because I became interested in the problems with uh, academic research in general. In 2005, it became clear that uh, most academic research is flawed. Uh, For instance, John Ioannidis, a professor in medical statistics at Stanford, uh, wrote this wonderful paper somewhere back in 2007, which was titled 
why most published research findings are false. And I was uh, immediately fascinated by, by, by the problem of flawed research. Uh, I started to study it. I tried to explain to people um, what the problems were at the level of research that made that it usually leads to the wrong conclusions. And from there on, I also started to become interested in all kinds of flawed information that circulates in society, uh, which contains intentional or unintentional, all kinds of misleading information, which nevertheless has a huge grip on society and has a huge impact on society. Together with that, I was also fascinated by the fact that most people, in a very strange way, most people actually continue to believe in narratives and in information that is utterly absurd in many respects. And in a strange way, most people or many people are incapable, rad radically incapable of taking a critical distance of what society believes in and see that this narratives or this information they believe in fail to see that it cannot be true. Um, and that stimulated my interest in a phenomenon of mass formation, a phenomenon that I had been, that I, that I'm studying now for about 10 years, and which is, I think, the only explanation why people can continue to believe in narratives that are often blatantly wrong, that always are highly damaging for their individual interests, which often leads them to fanatically believe, uh, to believe so fanatically in a narrative that they become radically intolerant for dissonant voices and that in the end they also stigmatize and ultimately try to destroy the people who do not go along with the narrative. And they typically do so as if it is their ethical duty to do so. That's the phenomenon of mass formation. Mass formation is a specific kind of group formation which has a very specific impact at the level of individual psychological functioning, which makes the individuals that are in the grip of it radically blind for the absurd characteristics of what the group believe in, which, which makes them willing to sacrifice everything that used to be important for them, and which also makes them radically intolerant for all dissonant voices and makes them stigmatize uh, eventually commit cruelties towards the people that do not buy into the narrative. So, throughout my career, uh, I became more and more fascinated with this, with this phenomenon uh, because I noticed on the one hand how uh, absurd narratives were circulating in society, had a huge impact on society, and because I noticed that many people, in a strange way, were incapable of noticing that something absurd was going on. And I started to think of that much earlier and I also was aware of the fact that it is exactly this kind of mass formation that leads to the emergence of totalitarian states. Uh, and when the corona crisis started, uh, I just knew that exactly this was going on in our society. I observed how absurd statistics were circulating in public space. I, I saw how everybody seems to be in the grip of a kind of statistical information that was, according to me, radically wrong. And I noticed how, again, society seemed to be completely blind for all counter-arguments and for all the observations that could uh, have made clear that the narrative they believed in was wrong. And I noticed also how, indeed, a major part of the population tended to stigmatize everyone who didn't buy into the narrative, 
and seem to be willing to exclude a large part of society of, uh, of the population from public space uh, if they were not willing to conform to the dominant ideology. So, in a strange way, I noticed that everything everything that I had been studying in the last years seemed to be happening now in public space, uh, and and I decided to start to speak out, to publish some opinion papers about this, and uh, and eventually to write uh, uh, my book. The psychology of totalitarianism, which tries to explain how this phenomenon of mass formation works, why it becomes stronger and stronger throughout the last few hundred years, and then uh, in specific, uh, what we can do about it to make sure that it doesn't lead to the destruction uh, of a major part of the population and eventually not only to the destruction of the people who do not go along with the masses, but also to the destruction of the masses itself, because that is so typical of mass formation. In the end, it is radically self-destructive. What I found really fascinating uh, is you talk about this, how it's actually very difficult to measure things. But that's not what we're taught, actually, you know, in school and even in university. You know, I, I, was, I was studying evolutionary biology. We're not taught this kind of stuff. But we're taught that this is that that measurement kind of is very very definitive in a way, and that's what we we've come to expect. Now, something I remember when I was uh, when I was studying and I was doing experimental design, I was actually stunned by the idea, and this deeply disturbed me, that if I adjust certain parameters of an experiment, I can almost get the result I want. Right, and of course, this could be very convenient if you're looking for grants in certain areas and so forth. Right, but I found this profoundly disturbing. But explain this to me, because this is not obvious to most of us at all. Yes, of course, measurements and quantifications are objective in a limited to measure to quantify a limited set of objects only. Characteristics that are strictly unidimensional can be measured adequately. Measuring an object actually always exists. In measuring an object, we actually always compare it to the unidimensional scale of the real numbers multiplied by a measurement unit. So, meaning that only strictly unidimensional characteristics of phenomena can be adequately measured. And most things in nature and in life are not strictly unidimensional. One of the best examples is uh, if you want to count or measure the number of people who are dying from COVID, then you're dealing with a, with a multidimensional phenomenon. Someone never dies of, for one reason. There are always a combination of, fact, of factors that play a role um, uh, when someone dies. His uh, immune system, a virus, uh, all kinds of other medical conditions he might have or have not, and so on. So deciding whether or not we will count someone as a corona victim is in the end, more a philosophical question. We have to deliberate about, yeah, okay, what was the condition of this person? Does it make sense to consider him as someone who died from a virus or rather of someone who died from old age or from uh, a certain comorbidity, another medical condition and so on? So almost all variables in the corona crisis were, were, were multidimensional in nature. And that explains, of course, while, why all the figures and numbers were so subjective. Uh, it became clear, for instance, that uh, over 90% of the people who were considered a corona victim in the end had three or more other medical conditions. And the same was true for the number of contaminations, the number of hospitalizations and so on. All these figures were highly subjective. And in one way or another, the dominant mainstream 
uh, narrative always chose for the most dramatic and most enthusiastic way of counting the number of uh, contaminations, uh, hospitalizations, uh, and the number of victims claimed by the virus. In my book, I, I write about that. The entire chapter four is devoted to uh, the problems at the level of measurement and the methodological problems in scientific re research, which make that, in the end, for instance, in the medical sciences, over 85% of all publications are radically flawed and cannot be reproduced, which means that they are actually in, uh, not objective. That shows the extent of the, of the, of the problems uh, at the level of academic research in our society, which is, of course, highly troublesome uh, because our society considers academic research and science to be the, the most important guiding principle to organize society and to organize uh, our human life. Um, and that's, I believe, uh, one of the major problems of our Western and culture. Of, our, of the tradition of, the, of, of enlightenment, we will have to look for other principles uh, to organize a society. Uh, if we don't, we will end up in an extremely destructive chaos, which will lead to the destruction, uh, in the end, to the destruction of humanity. Well, absolutely. I mean, you talk about how this mechanistic uh, view of the world kind of, you know, leads down the path to totalitarianism. Actually, this is the, 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 the case that you make. It ends up there almost inevitably. Let's discuss very briefly, because this is another thing that's not very obvious, probably to many of us, because we, we know there's been dictatorships in society since time immemorial, right? Um, but totalitarianism is a very specific kind of dictatorship or a, a very specific type of government, if you will, and you actually take time, you know, I think based on Hannah Arendt's work to actually explain what that means. I wonder if you could kind of reprise that. Yes, 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 yes. People, people often mix up a classical, a totalitarian state with a classical dictatorship, while it is something completely different. A classical dictatorship is based on a very primitive and simple psychological mechanism. It's just a population that is scared of the aggressive potentials of a small group, the so-called dictatorial regime. People are scared of them, and they just accept uh, that this dictatorial regime imposes its social contract in a one-sided way, uh, unilaterally. But in a totalitarian state, we are dealing with something completely different. In a totalitarian state, is always based on the so-called phenomenon of mass formation, which means that in a totalitarian state, there first is this segment of the population, uh, usually 20, 25, 30% of the population, which becomes fanatically convinced of a certain narrative and of a certain ideology. For instance, racist ideology, neo-Darwinian racist ideology of Nazi Germany, or the historical materialist uh, ideology of Marx in the Soviet Union. And in the end, it is this part of the population which is fanatically, fanatically convinced of, of a certain ideology or of a certain narrative, uh, that together with uh, a few leaders um, uh, succeeds in taking control over the state and which leads to the emergence of an, an entirely, a very specific uh, kind of state system which uh, has a huge impact on private life as well. A classical dictatorship, in a classical dictatorship, the point of gravity of the system is in the dictatorial regime. Uh, and if you succeed in eliminating a part of the regime, you will see that usually the dictatorial system will collapse. In a totalitarian system, 
the point of gravity is not so much in the elite, it's situated in the masses themselves, which makes that if a part of the totalitarian elite is destroyed, the system just continues as if nothing happened. And that's why Stalin, for instance, realized that he could perfectly eliminate 60% of his own communist party, that his system would not collapse. The, the people who were eliminated were just replaced and the system continued as if nothing happened. So we see this strange difference between a classical dictatorship and a totalitarian system. A totalitarian system is actually quite new. It emerged for the first time in the 20th century. Before that, there were classical dictatorships, uh, tyrannies and so on, but there were no totalitarian regimes. And that's one of the questions that I start from in my book. Like, why did a totalitarian state emerge for the first time in the 20th century? And then there's only one answer to that question. It's because the phenomenon of mass formation, which indeed exists for times immemorial, as long as mankind exists, uh, but which became increasingly strong and which lasted longer and longer throughout the last uh, three centuries. It's because the mass formation became so strong in the beginning of the 20th century that the masses could seize control in, the, in, in society, helped by their leaders, and that led to this new state system, which not only controls public space and uh, the, polit the political space, as a classical dictatorship uh, does, but which also controls the private space, which a classical dictatorship usually cannot control. A totalitarian system can control private life because it has a huge secret police as Hannah Arendt said, namely this part of the population that so fanatically believes in this narrative that led to the mass formation, that it is willing to report everyone, even their closest family members, to the state. This is exactly what happens every time a mass formation emerges, a large-scale mass formation emerges. A woman of Iran, Shoref Eshtali, told me two months ago, that conversation is available on the internet, how she uh, lived in Iran during the revolution in 1979, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. The revolution, which actually was a large-scale phenomenon of mass formation, and how she witnessed with her own eyes that a mother reported her son to the government, and how she hung the rope with her own hands around his neck just before he was hung, and how she claimed to be a heroine for doing so. That seems absurd, and it is absurd, of course, but once you really understand the mechanism of mass formation, you also understand why it leads to this kind of cruel uh, uh, behavior. This point, um, I want to talk about two things, and you can tell me which way which way you want to go because they're connected. Okay, the first one is there's these five really critical elements, and I want you to you know reprise them here. How mass formation is achieved, right? And it's you know especially this element of the, the, the atomization of the individual, the individual kind of being pulled out of, you know, being a normal part of society or the traditional part of society. But, so that's one piece. The second piece, and this is also very important, is the, I guess, imp critical importance of Hannah Arendt's work, which I think is very underappreciated today, especially around totalitarianism, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and much of the work, the whole concept of the banality of evil, 
and so forth, which of course you mentioned as well. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you go here. A mass formation emerges when very specific conditions are met in a society. And the most crucial condition, the root cause, I think, uh, mass formation is that many people in society have to feel disconnected from their natural and social environment. There's the most crucial precondition for mass formation to emerge is a large segment of the population that feels lonely, disconnected from that, its natural and social environment. And the number of people who, who felt disconnected was huge uh, just before the corona crisis. Over 30, it, had never, it, had, it has never been as high uh, as just before the corona crisis throughout history. So worldwide, 30% of the, of the population claimed to have no meaningful relationships at all and to only connect to other people through the internet. Uh, and the number of people, the number of lonely people increased throughout the last two or 300 centuries as a consequence of the rise of the mechanistic fuel man in the world and the industrialization of the world and the use of technology. All these factors are related to each other, of course. But I give many examples in my book showing how mechanist, rationalist thinking in itself led to a certain isolation of, of people from their environment and also how the industrialization of the world, the mechanization of the world and the use of technology also typically leads to this disconnection between the human being and its environment. And once people are in this disconnected state, they will typically start to experience purposelessness of, or lack of meaning making in life. That was also very clear just before the corona crisis. For instance, over 60% of the people worldwide reported to consider their job a so-called bullshit job. They thought that their jobs didn't have any meaning at all. And only 15% reported that they considered their job to be meaningful. And so that's the second step. First, you have this disconnection, this loneliness. Then you have um, a lack of meaning making, experiences of lack of meaning making. And then in the third step, which is very important, people typically develop so-called free floating anxiety, frustration and aggression, meaning that people start to be confronted with a kind of anxiety, frustration and aggression that is not connected to a mental representation. Or in other words, people feel anxious, frustrated, or aggressive without knowing what they feel anxious, frustrated, and aggressive for. And this is a highly aversive mental state because it makes people feel as if they are out of control. If you are anxious, but you don't know what you're anxious for, you typically cannot control your anxiety. You don't know what you should protect yourself from. And in this mental state, something very typical might happen. If in this condition, under these conditions, a narrative is distributed through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety, and at the same time, providing a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, there might be a huge willingness to participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. That's the first step of every major kind of mass formation, whether we are talking about the Crusades or the witch hunts or the French Revolution or Communism in the Soviet Union or the rise of Nazism in Nazi Germany, we always see the same. First, someone formulates this narrative indicating an object of anxiety. It can be the Jews, the witches, the Muslims, the aristocracy, doesn't matter. First, someone indicates an object of anxiety, provides a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, and then you see this 
radical willingness in the population to participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. The advantage, of course, is that from then on, people have a sense of control. They have the feeling that through the strategy, they can control their anxiety. And at the same time, they also have an object which they can direct their aggression and frustration on. And in a second step, something even more important happens. The most important thing, because many people participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety at the same time, people start to feel connected again. They start to feel connected again. A new kind of social bond emerges. But, and this is crucial, this new social bond, this new group that emerges, is not formed because individuals connect to other individuals. This new group is formed because individuals separately connect to the collective, meaning that this typical solidarity that exists in a mass or in a crowd is not a solidarity between individuals, it's a solidarity of every individual separately to the collective. Even more, the longer the mass formation exists, the more all the energy is sucked away from the bonds between individuals and is invested, infused in the bond between the individual and the collective. And that explains, of course, why during the Corona crisis, people were all full of solidarity and at the same time, they accepted that if their neighbor got an accident on the street, they were no longer allowed to help him unless they had surgical gloves or a surgical mask at their disposal. And that if their parents were dying, that they were not allowed to visit him. And all that in the name of solidarity with the elderly. So that's also why in a totalitarian state, the population typically ends up in a radical, radically paranoid atmosphere in which the bonds between individuals are so weak and the bond with the collective is so strong that everybody is willing to report each other if they think that someone else is not loyal enough to the collective. That's the reason that's also what explains, of course, why in the end mothers report their sons to the state if they think their sons are not loyal enough to the state. That's the strange, baffling, mind-boggling mechanism of mass formation, which is extremely strong, which is identical to a kind of hypnosis. It's hypnosis. It's exactly the same as hypnosis. Exactly. And which also explains why people continue to buy into the narrative, even if it becomes radically absurd. People don't buy into the narrative because they think it's accurate or because they think it's scientific or something. No. Unconsciously, the real reason why they buy into the narrative is always because it leads to this new social bond, because it frees them from their anxiety, because it enables them to direct their frustration and aggression at something. That are the real reasons of the mass formation. And no matter how absurd the narrative becomes, people will continue to buy into it. At least the 20 or 30 percent of the population that is really in the grip and that is really hypnotized because that's what it truly is. It's a process of hypnosis for, for certain people. Um, hyp hypnosis is something very uh, uh, simple, actually. It's just someone who can withdraw the attention, can take the attention away from reality or from the environment and focus all the attention and all the psychological energy on one small aspect of reality. And consequently, something very strange happens. 
It is as if the rest of reality doesn't exist anymore. And this mechanism is so strong that even strong physical pain is not felt anymore under hypnosis, as appears time and time again, every time hypnosis is used as a way to uh, make someone insensitive to pain, to sedate someone during a surgical operation. Operation. I've seen it happening. A simple uh, hypnotic procedure is sufficient to make someone so insensitive to pain that the surgeon can cut through the skin, through the flesh, even straight through the breastbone to perform an open heart operation without the patient noticing it. That explains uh, how strong this mechanism of uh, the focusing of attention is as it exists in hypnosis, also in illusionism and also in mass formation. Matthias, at this point, um, I think it would be best if you could kind of lay out, and you started talking about this as well, how you see these five elements or stages manifesting with coronavirus. Because, I mean, again, I think many people watching might see elements of this, but if you could lay it out. Yeah, yes. Well, in the beginning of the crisis, I, I, I well, you know, I will start a little bit earlier. Two or three months before the corona crisis started, in December 2019, I really had this intuition that something dramatic or that something fundamental would happen in society. I noticed how all negative psychological parameters, such as the stress and uh, depressions, anxiety, uh, burnouts, and so on, how they all started to rise, to increase exponentially. And in December 2019, I told my friends during a holiday, I told my friends, you will see one of these days, we will wake up in a different society. This intuition was so concrete in me that I decided to go to the bank and to finish my mortgage, to pay back my mortgage. And the bank director was asking me time and time again, but how can you so sure that something will happen that you decide to pay back your mortgage and so on? And he talked for one and a half hour. Um, and of course, I couldn't explain perfectly why I had this intuition, but I had this intuition. And then two months later, the corona crisis started. And, uh, and I, I, I was really having the feeling that, okay, yes, that was what I had been expecting, something like that. But what I noticed just before the corona crisis, that all this social disconnectedness, this social isolation, all this psychological problems, all this, these feelings of lack of meaning making, how they were constantly increasing, exponentially increasing. And I had a feeling already that society was ready for a large scale mass formation. And then I, I saw how the statistics started to circulate in, in public in the mainstream media. I, I noticed almost immediately that, that it was highly probable that uh, the statistics were dramatically overrating the dangerousness of the virus and at the same time underestimating the dangerousness of the measures that were taken. In a strange way, I noticed that um, most people or that, that actually nowhere in the mainstream media a, a, a simple elementary cost-benefit analysis was made because that's the first thing you would do in such a situation, in such a situation in which you consider to use drastic, dramatic measures to counter uh, a virus, you would expect that the first thing you would do is make a proper cost-benefit analysis. You would just think about, okay, how many victims can the virus claim and how many victims can the measures claim, the corona measures claim, the lockdowns and stuff. Well, and, and many, many scientists and academics actually warned society, also some institutions warned society, that it was that very probably, that it was highly probable that the corona measures would 
claim much more victims than the coronavirus could claim, even if no measures were taken at all. And in a strange way, this didn't happen. Nobody seemed to be interested in this cost-benefit analysis. For me, that was a typical example of how the attention of an entire population was focused so much on one small aspect of reality, namely the coronavirus and the corona measures, that it seemed incapable to take into account other aspects of reality, such as all the children that would starve in the developing countries as a consequence of the deregulation of the, the economy because of the lockdowns. I tried several times to show people, like, look, we have this coronavirus, the victims claimed by the virus, but we have these other victims. Do you see these other victims as well? And in a strange way, nobody, all these counter arguments didn't have an impact anymore on the mental functioning and on the decision making. And that is a clear cut sign. I think one of the clearest signs that a large scale mass formation is happening. Uh, also because this is new, suddenly in society, there seem to be two uh, camps, two groups. The one group who uh, went along, who bought into the, the mainstream narrative, and then the other group who, who felt that the mainstream narrative was absurd. And these two groups, the dividing line between these two groups run straight through all previously existing group formations. It was as if the society was completely reorganized into two entirely new camps. And that's typically what, what, what happens during a mass formation, I think. And from then on, once I realized that, I decided to stop uh, to try to convince time and time the other people, uh, uh, trying to show them how absurd the statistics were. I did from time to time, and I think we have to continue to do so. But I, 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 I rather focused from then on, on trying to tell people uh, what psychological mechanisms were going on in society and what they could lead to, uh, namely to the emergence of a new kind of totalitarianism, which is a technocratic totalitarianism, uh, which is both in a strange way uh, demanded or uh, by a certain part of the population and, of course, a part of the leaders who uh, already for several decades and maybe even for longer uh, believe that democracy should be replaced by technocracy, that society should be led by technical experts rather than by uh, democratically elected uh, politicians. The thing that I found incredible uh, at the beginning of your book was your discussion around how measurement is so imprecise and actually in a lot of ways so subjective and in a lot of ways erroneous, right? Because one of the things that has come out, I think, as a cost, as a, as a kind of outcome of watching the uh, COVID uh, response manifest and the use of various technocratic means and so forth is that inadvertently most of the decision-making uh, or a ton of the decision-making has just been very, very, very flawed. And the people that are pushing this, uh, these decisions out and imposing them on populations just keep doubling down irrespective of evidence which is provided, right? It's like, to me, it's almost like, you know, if you ever thought that technocracy would be a good idea, now we have, you know, the, the, a case study to demonstrate why it, it should never happen. Yes, yes, definitely. That's the problem, of course. Rationality is always blind. If we, if we believe we are rational, 
we usually become blind for all the subjective factors that play a role when we think rationally. And that's the reason also why I believe that rationality or rational understanding can never be the basis of human living together. The only thing that can really organize society and human living together in a fruitful way and in a humane way is ethical principles. It's our ethical principles, the eternal principles of humanity that should be the basis of human living together. We can be rational, we have to think rational, of course, but we should understand that rationality in itself uh, um, cannot, can never grasp the essence of our human existence and can never grasp the essence of everything around us. That is exactly what science showed us so clearly. We often think that this a mechanist, materialist, rationalist view of human man in the world which believes that the, that the universe, that the entire universe is a material system of molecules and atoms uh, which interact uh, with each other according to the laws of mechanics, which can be completely understood in a rational way. We often believe that this rationalist view of man in the world is equals the scientific view of man in the world, but that's actually not true. All major scientists, that's exactly what all major scientists showed us, namely that uh, in the end, the essence of life and uh, uh, the essence of, of nature around us, the essence of the world is irrational. That's something that was, for instance, proven by um, complex dynamical systems theory, which, which showed paradoxically in a strictly rational way that the essence of all complex dynamical systems, which is most part of nature, is strictly irrational. And they showed that complex systems behave in the same way as irrational numbers, in a, in a non-periodic way. And that's where, that's where you can start to understand why Niels Bohr, the famous physicist, who won the Nobel Prize said, when it comes to elementary particles, to atoms, language can only be used as poetry. And that's, he, he, he meant that, he said that he meant that like, the behavior of elementary particles is fundamentally irrational and the only kind of language that can capture something of the essence of their behavior is not a logical language. It is a poetic, symbolic, mystical language. And in the same vein, in the same vein, someone like René Tom, one of the most famous mathematicians of the 20th century, said that, I quote him, this part of reality that can be understood in a rational way is very limited. And the rest of reality, we can only know by empathically resonating with it. So, um, and that's something that I experienced in my own life very well. Until I was 35 years old, I really believed that everything around me and nature could be understood in a rational way. I couldn't see how the facts, everything around us, could behave irrationally. The facts are logical. That's something that, for me, could not be doubted. And when I was about 35 years old, I started to understand that it was not true. I started to understand, because of systems theory, that the things around me and nature are intrinsically irrational and that we can never know them, we can never reduce the things around us. Uh, the plants, the trees, the, the human beings around us, the animals, uh, all uh, nature around us, we can never reduce it to the categories of our own logical understanding. And I think that that, for me, was also the moment at which I really started to succeed 
in opening up, really, almost literally. When you think logically, you connect the one logical ID to the other, and this forms like a closed system. And when you can accept and become aware that there is a limit to your rational understanding, that you will never be able to reduce the things around you uh, to the categories of your own rational thinking. At that moment, almost literally, it is as if all these ideas that uh, were connected to each other start to open up a little bit. And it is as if the vibration, the eternal music of the things around you can enter your being and can touch the strings of your being. I, I, in my book, I literally compare the human being to a string instrument. And I think that's true. And if we hide behind a closed system of logical ideas, we can we stop resonating with the mystery of the things around us, with the eternal music of life. And it is at that moment when we can open up and we can start resonating, that we can really get in touch with something eternal around us. And it is at that moment that we can start to feel these principles, the eternal principles of life and of humanity, which tremble in everything around us. And I think that it are these principles which we can never articulate in a definitive way. We have always renew our awareness of these principles. We have to reinvent them time and time again. But I think that, that it are only these principles that can allow us to organize human living together in a truly human and humane way. And, well, these principles, yes, as I said, uh, they are extremely important. This resonating knowledge, which leads to the awareness of uh, principles of humanity, uh, is extremely important. Uh, we can expect everything of that, I think. Uh, I could refer, for instance, as I do in the last chapter of my book, to the book of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, the guy who won the Nobel Prize for his work on the concentration camps of Stalin in the Gulags, in which he stayed for about 15 years, if I'm not mistaken. And he, he describes how in the concentration camps, uh, most prisoners started to behave in a radically beast-like manner. They lost all ethical awareness. Uh, they crushed each, each other's skulls during the night. They became even, even more terrible for each other than the guards were already for them. And Solzhenitsyn describes how in this pool of darkness, a small part of the prisoners went in exactly the opposite direction. The more inhumane the world around them became, the more they became determined to stick to ethical principles themselves. And Solzhenitsyn describes something wonderful. He describes in particular uh, in one of his, uh, his fellow prisoners, uh, um, Ivanovich Grigoriev, how he entered uh, the gulags being a little bit sick, uh, suffering from several medical conditions, but how he refused time and time again to, 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 to do something that uh, was not in harmony with his ethical principles. If someone stole his food or his clothes, he just went out uh, without having eaten, uh, uh, worked in, in, in temperatures of minus 40, minus 50 degrees Celsius, uh, clothed in only a cotton sack or something with four holes in it, 
And when the guards uh, commanded him to do something that he considered unethical, he refused to do it, to do so, even no matter what the punishment was. And Solzhenitsyn describes how this guy became stronger and stronger, also physically, and how finally he managed, he, he survived the gulags for 15 years. And Solzhenitsyn says that if you start from a materialist, mechanist, rationalist view on men in the world, you can never understand something like that. But if you were in the gulags, and if you have experienced yourself what the impact of sticking to ethical principles is under the most difficult conditions, then you can start to understand uh, what the fundamental value and importance is for a print, uh, of principles for the human being, both physically and emotionally, psychologically, and also for society and for human living together. So I think that, in my opinion, we are on the verge of discovering that this ideal of uh, the, the tradition of enlightenment, the ideology of reason, is highly limited, that the rational understanding is extremely limited, can never be the basis of, uh, of, of, uh, of society. Throughout the last centuries, we have been thinking that um, rational understanding is crucial and is the basis of human living together. The entire tradition of enlightenment actually believed that a society should be organized according to rational knowledge and rational understanding that we should try to manipulate the world around us also in a rational way, in such a way um, that it becomes more friendly to the human being. But we should do our utmost best to open up, to become aware of the limitations of logical and rational understanding and to develop a different connection with our environment, a different way of knowing the things around us, which is much more based on resonance and on empathic resonance with the things around us in such a way that we discover these eternal principles of humanity and that we can use them or that we can base human living together on these ethical principles rather than on a kind of rational analysis, which is always in the end based on factors that are radically irrational. That's the point. If we, if we think that the rational understanding is the basis of everything, in the end we, we, we arrive in a, in a completely irrational society. That's what I think the corona crisis shows us now. Uh, people think that they behave rationally, but upon closer consideration, it is clear, I think, uh, that their behavior in most respects is radically irrational and self-destructive. This is an incredibly optimistic and humane vision of the world, and I'm, I'm you know, very, very happy to hear you so passionate about it. And that is one of the things that gave me a lot to think about in reading your book. Um, one of the things that struck me um, is that, you know, you said that this phenomenon of mass formation is really, you know, basically become a much larger and larger phenomenon recently. What strikes me is that none of what you described around Corona could have happened without the strong participation of uh, legacy or corporate or establishment media and also social media, basically pushing this kind of messaging out. And of course, we know, for example, you know, in Nazi Germany, uh, they were experts at this kind of propaganda, right? The will to power, the film, the imagery, um, and so forth. 
So I just, uh, I wanted you to comment on this a little bit. It seems like the technology is actually an important element here. Technology is an important element, of course. Mass formation can emerge without technology or without mass media, but it will never last very long. It typically ceases to exist after a certain while. It's only when the same narrative is repeated time and time again through mass media, is recirculated time and time again through mass media, that the mass formation can last so long that it is capable of seizing, of taking control over society. So that it's very well known, has been described from the 19th century onwards. And uh, many people uh, are aware of the fact that through the mass media and through technological machinery and devices, uh, they have the capacity and uh, to, to like uh, Edward Bernays, I don't know if you know him, uh, the guy who is considered to be the father of public relations, a nephew of uh, Sigmund Freud, but uh, of a completely different nature, I think. Sigmund Freud was, a, was someone with a strong ethical awareness and Bernays tried to have an ethical awareness, but I don't think he succeeded uh, very well in doing so and being very ethical. But someone like Bernays describes already that uh, the masses are extremely dangerous, that they are irrational and self-destructive. Okay, that's right, I think. But then he decides that, or he concludes that, that's exactly why we should develop all kinds of strategies to control them and to manipulate them. Uh, and, and he also refers to the fact that exactly the technological developments allow us to do so. And his entire public relations discourse is actually a demonstration or, or a description of all the techniques and strategies you can use to manipulate and control the masses. And that's the problem, of course. And the, and initially, I think that propaganda and public relations and all kinds of uh, media uh, started from the idea that they had to control the masses just to make sure that society doesn't fall prey to the destructiveness of the masses. Uh, but in the end, uh, they used the destructiveness of the masses to seize control over the state system and they became radically uh, uh, they became as destructive as the masses themselves. So that's what Hannah Arendt calls, in the end, there was like a diabolic pact between the masses and the elite, uh, which uh, led to the emergence of, uh, of, of the totalitarian state machinery. Um, so uh, there, is, there are other ways to make sure that a society doesn't fall prey to the aggression and the irrationality and the destructiveness of the masses. And it is exactly the opposite of what propaganda is and misinformation and manipulation is. It is just we have to reappreciate uh, the value of what the ancient Greeks, the ancient Jews, the uh, ancient Japanese culture called truth speech. That's exactly if you want to avoid that there are that masses emerge and that the masses become highly um, destructive and irrational and so on, then the first thing you have to make sure of is that people uh, reconnect with their environment. And that means we have to move on to a society with much more local production of all kinds of, 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 of the things we need to survive. That's one thing. We have to um, cultivate and to promote a truthful speech in society. Um, we have to make sure 
that these conditions of social isolation, lack of meaning making, free floating uh, anxiety, frustration, and aggression are avoided. Uh, that are the things we can do to truly solve the problem of mass formation, much more than believing that the solution would be uh, that the minor elite would control and manipulate the masses in an efficient way, because this minor elite is in the grip of, of, of mass hypnosis itself and will become exactly as self-destructive and as irrational uh, as, the, as the masses tend to become. So <laughs> that's the big problem, of course. Well, and that's something actually very interesting that you say in the book, because of course, you know, for this, I think you said 10 to 30% that absolutely, you know, doesn't accept uh, the, the dominant narrative, for example, around Corona or whatever. Um, you know, many people uh, I've heard, you know, imagine that there is some sort of grand conspiracy, uh, basically, you know, to control the world or there, there's different variations of this. Right. And of course, and indeed, there are uh, all sorts of people that are looking to take advantage of the situations and groups and large multinational corporations and uh, uh, think possibly large think tanks. Anyhow, something that you say struck me really, uh, really uh, strongly. You said, the ultimate master is the ideology, not the elites, right? And you, you were just talking about this earlier. That, that's fascinating. One of the problems with an extreme conspiracy thinking is that it seems to believe that if you would destroy the uh, elite, the evil elite, then the problem would be solved. That would definitely not be the case. First and for all, I doubt whether the elite is much more evil uh, than the population. I think uh, the population always also... It says Solzhenitsyn also said that. He said, the dividing line be between good and evil runs through every heart, he said. It's not, it doesn't run in between people, the one group being evil and the other group being, being good. No, not at all. Everybody knows there is evil uh, and good in everyone's heart. And uh, that's the first problem. It's uh, with, with this extreme conspiracy thinking that it situates all the evil, it localizes all the evil in one small group. Believing that, suggesting that, the destruction of this group would be sufficient to solve the problem. That's not true at all. As long as the society is in the grip of this mechanistic, rationalistic thinking, it will recreate the same elite time and time again. The only profound solution to the problem is that there is a sufficient number of people who becomes aware of the relativity of uh, mechanistic, rationalist thinking, and who moves on to a different way of knowing the world, as I just explained. That's the only true solution. And um, in that case, if we can start to think in a different way, we will see that a new elite is formed and that the elite that exists now will cease to exist in a spontaneous way. And that's the true solution to the things. And the only thing we have to do, I think, to do so uh, is just in the years to come, which might be very difficult years um, for everyone, for the people who do not go along with the mainstream and also for the people who do go along with the mainstream narrative. It might become difficult for everyone. And we will never be able to predict what exactly might happen in the years to come. Never. Because it's just not ours to predict such things. The society is a complex dynamical system, and the characteristic of such systems is just that even if you have the mathematical formula in your hand, 
that describes the behavior. You can never, never predict their behavior. That's one of the characteristics. So we should not lose too much energy, I think, in trying to predict what will happen, what exactly will happen, what we should do instead, I think. We should focus, we should invest our energy just in trying to live up, as I said before, to the principles of humanity, trying to rediscover them, trying to speak out, because I think the first and most important principle of a human being is that it should try to articulate the words that seem sincere to it. We should invest all our energy in the only thing that we can be sure of, and that is that we ourselves can remain human, live up to it, to, to human principles in a world that is increasingly becoming inhumane. If we do that, all the rest will happen automatically, I think. All the rest uh, will be done for us. The, we don't have to do much more than that. Uh, but that doesn't mean, of course, which is which will be extremely difficult. I'm aware of that. It's not because it's simple that it cannot be highly difficult to do it. <laughs> that's that's uh, I'm, I'm aware of that. Um, no, absolutely. And, you know, you uh, so far, we've talked about two groups in society. But as you describe it in your book, there's actually three groups. Uh, one group is the group that is, you know, in the grips of the mass formation. Another group is that that's opposed to that you know, vision of the world. And the third group is the one that's sort of just kind of going along with things. So that group, it strikes me, is the one that's most most susceptible to being, um, I guess, you know, influenced or encouraged can change their thinking more easily. Um, the second piece that I'm thinking of right now is that uh, Hannah Arendt, uh, because we keep talking about her, of course, and I was going to just get you to briefly say why she's so important to your thinking, but she also does talk about her belief that it's the nonviolent resistance, or her observation is that the nonviolent resistance is the thing that has the greatest impact, it seems, on you know shifting the mass, so to speak. Yes, yes, nonviolent resistance is crucial. Um, you know, resistance from within a totalitarian system can only be successful if it sticks to the principles of nonviolent resistance. Uh, external enemies of a totalitarian system, of course, can destroy a totalitarian system. That's what's what happened to Nazi Germany, for instance. Uh, but internal enemies, internal resistance should always stick to the principles of nonviolent resistance simply because every use of violence will, be, will have the effect on the masses that it is justified, even necessary to destroy the people who do go against them. So it's very clear. Hannah Arendt has been describing that indeed, how nonviolent resistance is, a, is the only way, uh, is, is, the, is the only thing that can be successful. Uh, nonviolent resistance can happen in many ways. Uh, I think it is a good time now to start to study the way in which people such as uh, uh, Gandhi uh, uh, proceeded in, in India. Um, but uh, in any case, uh, Nonviolent resistance uh, is uh, is what we should uh, try to realize. Uh, definitely, yes. You mentioned this approach of truth speaking as a kind of the the way to behave in the future, the necessary way to 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 act in this sort of in the you know future paradigm that you envision, and so that actually is something a little deeper than might be entirely obvious. And of course, it is. It has to do with speaking honestly and speaking truthfully, but it's something deeper than that. And as we finish, I was hoping you could actually just speak to that. Yes, yes. 
what truth is is very hard to define and that's logical because you can never say the ultimate truth about the truth there is always you always lack words to define what truth is but indeed um, i'm writing a new book now and it's all about the art of speech and the difference between rhetorics propaganda and so on on the one hand and truth speech on the other hand there are the ancient greeks distinguished between four kinds of uh, truth speaking uh, which were prophecy wisdom then something they called techni which is like a kind of technically correct knowledge uh, and then uh, what, something that they called parisia parisia which is a kind of bold and courageous speech of an individual which defies the group so uh, and the ancient greeks distinguish between these four types of of, of truth speaking and they in particular the latter one um, uh, this courageous speech of individuals uh, even if they put themselves at risk because they go against the current or they swim against the tide uh, go against the group in particular this kind of truth speaking they considered crucial for a society uh, so well um, it's quite hard to to define these four types of of, uh, of, of truth speaking uh, in a concise way but in any case i think what is important for now is that we reappreciate the value of human speech in particular the value of truth speaking uh, in every respect it's not only important for society to prevent society to become utterly destructive and self-destructive but also uh, for our own existence as a human being it's crucial it's speaking and truth speaking is the most important way i believe if we want to evolve as a human being if we want to become stronger and purer as a human being it's it is sufficient in times such as the ones we are living in now to try to continue to speak out in a quiet sincere and honest way to automatically go through a process of evolution as a human being i think uh, if we continue to, to to do that uh, we will do the most important thing that we can do in these times we might be able to prevent that all that humanity radically ceases to exist uh, because of the emerging totalitarianism well matthias desmet it's such a pleasure to have you on the show thank you thank you it was great talking to you and um, and thank you for inviting me thank you all for joining professor matthias desmet and me on this episode of american thought leaders his book again is the psychology of totalitarianism i'm your host janja kelek